Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi. Hi, everybody. I'm just turning on my recorder before I forget, because I often forget. And this month's book was, I've taken the dust sheet off, but Fearless by Dr. Pippa Grange. And it's all about how, certainly her philosophy, that fear is the emotion that underpins so many of the limiting self-beliefs and limiting behaviours that we engage in. And that your life can be richer bigger, more engaged, if you can address that fear and get underneath it. So we're going to be talking today about some of those ideas about fear. Some of you sent your questions in ahead of time. So I will answer those as well. And hopefully get to grips with an issue that was pretty big for a lot of you. When I spoke to you about this, when I spoke to you about fear and how fear Uh, affects your life and what it keeps you away from a lot of you said that there were lots of things about fear that interfere with the rest of your life and and the things that you want to do so hopefully and I want to do a little bit more about fear as we progress maybe into next year so hopefully this will be valuable for you so for those of you who perhaps didn't read the book she outlines and Philippa Grange works essentially with organizations and sports teams so footballers and rugby players and sports teams so she's a a sports psychologist a performance psychologist and so she looks at how to shift a team's focus away from fear and anxiety fear of failure for example and how to shift it more towards a you know optimistic progressive cohesive view where you can work together um, and overcome your fear and what she does which I really like is highlight some of the key indicators that you might be living within a fear-based environment and it certainly struck me very very quickly that it's not just corporate environments that you might see these features in but um, certainly families Um, I, I see these features in a lot of families and so the fear-based environments that she highlights and I think it's worth going through them so that we can have a little discussion about it the first one is passive aggressive environments and that what passive aggressive environments set up for you is when people don't say what they mean the fear is that you never really know where you stand you never really know 
what people are thinking about you. You never really know whether you've made a mistake, whether you're being accused of something, whether someone is harboring resentments against you. And the thing, and I've spoken about passive aggression before, the thing about passive aggression is that it's it's absolutely a, a boulder. It's a huge hurdle in terms of your relationships and, and moving those relationships to relational depth because if you can't talk about the things that irritate you, that annoy you, that, you know, come up as the everyday normal frictions in a relationship, whether that is a friendship, an intimate relationship, a relationship with your co-workers, then you never really get to be relating in a real sense with that person. Everything stays on a very superficial level where we're all just kind of faking it really. We're just pretending that everything's fine. And the thing that you will hear me say over and over and over again is that the quality of a relationship, the strength of a relationship isn't based on the fact that there are never any conflicts. You know, we never fight. It's great. You know, we always get on all the time for an ever and ever our men. It's about the capacity to repair. It's about the ability to say, I disagree with you, but I still respect you or I disagree with you but I still value you. I was hurt by something you did, but fundamentally I understand that you care about me. And so we can work on this basis that we don't have to agree all the time. And in fact, we can have difficulty and conflict, but that we can come back together in, in terms of respectfulness and uh, mutual trust and a sense that I can be all of me, which is disagreeable, argumentative, difficult and still be lovable and you can still care about me um so that's what we really understand to be the basis of a strong relationship uh, and the thing about passive aggression is that it, you never get to test those boundaries or the, or the you know the foundations of your relationship because everything is kept on this superficial level and you never really get to address any real frictions that might emerge so a passive aggressive environment was one that she described as a fear-based one. The next one was one that was, she called it predatory. So uh, environments in which things are really deeply competitive. And, and again, you can see this a lot in families. It can emerge in families such that sometimes you can see siblings pitched up against one another you can sometimes parents pitch themselves up against one another and what you see is that this isn't an environment you know a family of safety where all of the members feel like well I can relax and I can let my guard down and I can be vulnerable and I can be afraid and all of those things and still know that I'm fundamentally safe it's an environment in which everyone has to fend for themselves every flaw might be poked at and made fun of or used against you and so these what she calls predatory highly competitive environments are the second of her kind of fear-based cultures and um, again she says that these are what she sees in corporate settings but i'm saying i also very much see them emerge as part of dysfunctional family dynamics the next one was power-based and we don't often think about families as being power-based but actually they really can be if you have a, a family or again like a team environment that is very very hierarchical right so that you know this 
level of people has this much status and then the rungs below until someone is at the very, very bottom, then you can think of that as a power-based hierarchical structure. And the reason that this is fear-based is because really what we're talking about is everybody trying to maintain or attain a different social standing right so when you've got these sort of social hierarchies everyone is acutely aware of where they fit in those social hierarchies everyone is aware of who's below them and everyone is aware of who's above them and everybody's trying to kind of climb the ladder and what it can mean is that you can feel that your position is very unstable. These are the sorts of environments that really engender a kind of unhealthy perfectionism, right? Because you might get the sense that I have to be perfect. Everything has to be 100% correct because if I'm not perfect, then I lose my value. And if I lose my value, I, I lose my position, I lose my standing. So these environments can be incredibly difficult. And then the last one was possessive. So she talks about fear-based environments as being ones in which people feel not so much that they belong, but that they are owned, yeah? So that they are really just possessed by, in this, in her example, the organization that you're in. But again, this can very much emerge in families when we think perhaps about ideas of duty or of obligation or of uh, honor where your real intimate personal honest needs are pitched against the needs of the families the expectations of the family or the expectations of the culture the the obligations that you might have to everybody else and that can make it very very difficult to be yourself right if you feel like you being honestly and truly you might go up against or might not be accepted by the organization or the community or the family, then you live in a constant state of fear because what you're doing is hiding a part of yourself because what you know is that you feel like, well, you know, I'm not acceptable and this isn't going, this isn't a safe place for me to be. So those were the four, I'll read them through again. So the four fear-based environments as set out in the book are passive-aggressive, predatory. So passive-aggressive being not really saying what you mean. Predatory being deeply competitive, win-lose environments. Uh, power-based, i.e. where there is a lot of control and people exert power from above on those below. And possessive, where you don't necessarily feel so much that you belong, but that you are owned. A sense of duty and obligation so if you guys have any thoughts on that and maybe for those of you who are journaling along with um, lockdown lit club that, that might give you a little bit of fodder to think about i mean it might not if if you haven't had experience of this either in families or in corporate environments but um i think lots of us do come up against those ideas somewhere and it might be valuable to think about where that fear might be having an impact on your life or on the way that you think or the things that you think you are capable of or entitled to do yeah okay so the next part is really important which is you know once we've identified what the fear-based environments are then 
what is the impact of fear on us? And again, she kind of outlines some basic examples. And I think these are, again, very useful. So it's worth going through. So the first thing, and I'm glad she put this one first, actually. The first thing she says is that fear spoils your fun. And this is certainly something that I I think about a lot and I see a lot. And I guess those two things are related. But that very few people, so for example, if people come in, you know, to therapy or, you know, just in these sorts of conversations, there aren't enough adults thinking about fun as a sensible, necessary feature of an adult life, right? We think about fun in the context of children and it's important that children have fun. Maybe as teenagers, we have fun, but there's, there seems to be a point at which we all decide as adults that <laughs> fun is over and we have to stop now um, and we have to be very serious and fun is, is, fun is in the past and it's seen as frivolous, right? So this kind of sense in which it's it's not a serious thing and adults have to be serious and the problem with that is is that fun is a, an example of a sense of freedom so one of the things if anybody has worked with children and if you've been teachers if you're you know a teacher or social workers or you know anybody who's worked with with young kids one of the things that we learn first when thinking about child protection is that a child who doesn't play is a child who is struggling with something you know maybe they are a carer maybe they have a, an ill parent maybe there's alcoholism or abuse somewhere in the family, you know, something. A child who doesn't play is a child who is struggling. And because in order to, to play, you need to not be in survival mode, right? So survival mode is this, uh, you know, an automatic, almost primal response. You know, when something is threatening really the the body overtakes you know autonomic nervous system overtakes and says look we need to protect ourselves and lots of kind of cascades of mechanisms switch on your cortisol goes on literally where you focus your eye changes stress hormone levels go up heartbeat all of those things in order to prepare you that you know the fight or flight response to prepare you to survive whatever the threat is and when it when you're trying to survive a threat you don't have the freedom of mind, the, you know, literally, you don't have the capacity for play and creativity and lightness and openness and all of those sorts of things. So in childhood, we see play as a sign of health. And for some reason, we don't extend that to adults. Right? In adulthood, somewhere between, you know, 17 and 25, we decide that play or fun is a sign of childishness or being you know not being serious and actually i would disagree i would say you can be serious you can be competitive you can be ambitious and still have a sense of fun and that we should certainly encourage that as much as possible and so the first thing about fear is that in the same way that a child is struggling doesn't play that an adult who is in one of these fear environments or in one of these fear mindsets 
doesn't have the freedom for fun, whatever that fun might be, you know, maybe fun for you is, I don't know, going to clown school on, on a Saturday, or it is, you know, it's, you know, whatever hobby or leisure it might be, that it takes you away from those things. It steals your freedom. It steals your peace of mind. Just seeing a question here. Margaret says, in my religious upbringing as a child, fun was seen as having disrespect. <sighs> okay. So <sighs> I'm really sorry because what we understand is that, yeah, fun and play and, and certainly for children play is a huge part of development children really work things out through play and so I think it's really tough if that was restricted or limited for you and you know but I'm a, a big uh, advocate of reparenting so I would suggest that you find ways to have fun and play and have that lightness in your life now I think it's necessary I think it's really healthy yeah Okay, so the first way that fear limits us is by taking away our fun, reducing our capacity for fun. The second way is that it keeps you small, right? And uh, this links to one of the questions that came in, which was around a fear of failure, you know, or looking silly. And I, I will kind of get to that separately, but it's certainly what fear does. Fear says, I have to be perfect. I have to get this right. The stakes are really high. I, I I won't get a second chance. I can't blow this. You know, whatever the story is, fear does that. And instead of giving you the freedom to take the risks that are absolutely essential in order to see what you're capable of, right? So because to really understand what you're capable of, you have to push at the boundaries of where you are now, right? So if say you can comfortably run a mile and you feel like, okay, you know, maybe I'd like to run a longer distance. In a in a kind of fear condition or a fear mindset, you say, well, but I don't know, I might, I might not make it to two miles. I might get tired. Wouldn't that be embarrassing? Wouldn't I feel like a failure if I couldn't get to two miles? What if, you know, so you your mind becomes filled with the risks and the fears and what that doesn't give you the opportunity to do is, is just try, you know, like, okay, let me, let me just see. What if I reduce the stakes? Let me just see. So it's always at the edge of what you think you're capable of, where it's, you're kind of taking a, a measured risk that you, you you expand, your your view of yourself expands, your view of the world expands, your appreciation of your capabilities expands. So the, the, the second of fear's limits is that it keeps you small, yeah. The next one is that it undermines trust. And I think this is really important. And that goes back to these family dynamics that are, ver that are based on kind of high power and competitiveness, because if you're in a state of fear, so if we go back to that body, which is looking out for a danger, which is preparing you to survive, fight or flight or, or freeze, then everything and everyone is a danger, right? So if you're in a fear mindset or if you're in a fear environment and say someone new comes in, you know, a new person joins the organization, then you are less likely to be open to 
bringing that person into the fold, going for coffee with them, seeing whether you guys have a good alliance, whether even you could be friends, because your underlying position is, is this person a threat to me? What is this person capable of? What skills, attributes, abilities do they have that might be better than me? And how do I defend myself against that? So in these mindsets, and this really links back to the black and white thinking um, series that I did, in these mindsets, everyone else is the enemy and everyone else is a threat. And what that does is to cut you off from trust. And that's a massive problem because trust, of course, is a basis of good relationships. So fear can really get in the way of you building good relationships. And you uh, you see this sometimes. I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about social media and some of the dynamics that I kind of, I'm on the periphery of, I think. And, and there's this way in which there's a sense of, you know, keep your enemies closer, you know, that, that thing. But that what it can do if there's a fear-based kind of competitive environment is that it can set up a way in which there are lots of kind of distrustful relationships and no one ever really feels safe or content. And I think it undermines mental health. I think it's really bad for you to have that and, and where you might have friendships where, you know, like frenemies, where you're like, I'm not sure I really trust this person but maybe it feels easier to keep them close or to not fall out with them. It's just a hassle. So I'll just keep appeasing them. But the energy that takes in terms of maintaining a fake relationship, the, the missed opportunity of then being able to use that energy to foster or deepen other relationships that might be more help, healthy for you. The constant sense of being on edge because you're surrounded or spending a lot of time with someone that you don't trust, I personally don't think is worth it. But um, it's something that I, I see a fair amount. Liliana says, would that also be applicable for work relationships? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, in the book, I'm relating all of this to kind of intimate and close relationships, friends, families, partners. But in the book, she talks really about corporates and teams. That's where most of, where she does most of her work. Okay, grand. All right, so, so that was three of five. Uh, number four is it restricts your mental freedom. So I've kind of touched on this in as far as that, you know, play and lightness is different, is a different mental and physiological state from stress, worry and anxiety. And for example, in order to be creative, you need to have a freedom of mind and a peace of mind and a lightness. You know, you need to be uh, relax in order sometimes for the actual parts of your brain to connect to be able to draw information so creativity is the combination of known information with novel information and then you come up with something else and in order to be able to have those connections you need to not be in a state of fight or flight you need to kind of not be stressed and anxious so it can limit your mental freedom and then the final one which again I think is hugely important is what she calls, or a friend of hers calls, the tragedy of low expectations. And so this, so this is one of the ways that fear can limit you, which is like with the example where someone is, you know, could I run two miles? 
I don't know, it's, it's probably safer not to. I better just lower my expectations and stick with what's safe, what I definitely know I can do. And what she, she writes, which I really loved, was um, expectations are the power behind your ambitions. And I think about this, you know, a lot in terms of what we tell children about what they're capable of and how those messages can really stick with people. So something that happens very commonly is, you know, in families, there will be, everyone will be assigned a role. So you'll have the smart one, um, the pretty one, the sporty one, the outgoing one. And these labels can stick. And the thing about, thing when you give children labels, when adults give children labels, they believe them, yeah? they take it as, you know, gospel, you know, an adult, and we're all conditioned to trust adults and adults are, you know, are protectors and they're bigger than us and they know the world. So if an adult gives a child a label, it has huge power in constructing that child's sense of who they are and therefore what they are capable of. And so if you say to a child, oh, but you're you're not the academic one, you're the sporty one, but you know, you're not the ac academic one, you're not as smart as your sister. That sets that expectation low. And again, it, you know, you've created a child who, who, who will stop at one mile, yeah? So again, so those five limits of fear spoils your fun, keeps you small, undermines trust, restricts mental freedom, and brings about the tragedy of low expectations. And so then in the rest of the book, she's going, going through ways in which to address it. And what's quite nice and, and realistic is that it wasn't a five point plan where you're just gonna kind of breeze through this in a weekend, but really about trying to get underneath to the fear and doing the reflective work that, you know, a lot of you are starting to get to in the Lockdown Lit Club journal project. And, and then facing that fear. So on that, I will answer the questions that came in. And if there are any more, um, please do drop them in in the comments. Oh, no, I had one more note that I wanted to say. High fear leads to being, to being over controlling. Okay, so yes. So high fear environments, I just wanted to make a note about high fear environments leading to this sense of being a perfectionist and being over controlling and and again, she makes this really interesting point that when we think about perfectionism, and I, I am not a fan of perfectionism. I don't even like the word, to be honest, because it still has too many positive connotations for actually the negative outcomes that are so often related to it. But perfection, perfectionism is more often than not, and granted, I see a skewed sample, but it's more often than not a trap than it is a means of, or, or a pathway to happiness. I think... You can certainly be ambitious. I think you can certainly strive. I think you can certainly have goals that you work towards. But the the notion of perfection and the goal of perfectionism, I think is, I don't think it's very human, <laughs> if I'm being really honest. I, I, it, it, it's just not the way life works. So yeah, so, and, and we when we think about perfectionism, we tend to think about, well, is it good or bad based on its outcomes rather than is it good or bad based on how it makes people feel, how it leaves people in themselves. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, what the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, but your questions: How to overcome a fear of failure or looking silly? And it's quite a complex answer because uh, I have spoken about fear of failure on the self-sabotage podcast. And there are lots of ways that a fear of failure can emerge, that it can kind of come about and express itself. So I don't think there's a particular, you know, there isn't a one size fits all answer to this. I would be though, so if someone were sitting with me and this was the dilemma they were facing, I would be wondering why the stakes felt so high. You know, what what's the problem with looking a bit silly? Are you putting undue pressure on yourself or have you felt like undue pressure has been put on you? Why is it so important that, what does silly mean? You know, all of these things. So I'd be saying, what do you mean I'm afraid of looking silly. To whom? Um, how long would that last? How would you know that you look silly? Is it that you're afraid of criticism? Criticism from whom? So I'd really want to pull it apart. I'd also be looking into the fear of failure because I sometimes think that a fear of failure can be something else. And for example, one of the things that I talk about in the Self-Sabotage podcast is actually a fear of success. So if someone has grown up in or been exposed to these very competitive, high power environments where it's win or lose and we're all out for ourselves and I can't be happy for other people because if someone else is doing well, then it's because they've taken something from me. Then success can feel quite dangerous, right? If you have, say, a very competitive older sibling who, whenever you do something well, becomes very critical or very moody or, you know, kind of mean, then that takes your relationship to success. So I think fear of failure is a difficult one. And I'd be really looking at what does failure mean? How do we reconstruct the idea of failure to learning? And some of the things that I've said to you guys before around, rather than saying, you know, that was rubbish. I sucked at that. You know, what did it teach me? This is one moment in a long lifetime. What did it teach me? What lesson can I take from that experience? And also to be reassured by, and I've done, I've got a whole 
section of, in my book called uh, Making Friends with Failure is that a literally a statistical analysis, a scientific paper has found that not only is failure a part of success, but it is a prerequisite for success, which means you have to fail. You know, all of the people that have succeeded have failed first. And what the difference is, is really how they've analyzed and evaluated that original failure. So if they looked at that original failure and went, you know, whatever, you know, I am a failure, you know, they've taken it on as a, as an identity and have allowed it to restrict them and make them small and take them away, away from being ambitious or optimistic, then that's associated with a negative outcome. But if they've looked at it with curiosity like whoa you know what went wrong <laughs> you're like wow we didn't expect that outcome that isn't what we wanted how did that happen then that failure very much in inverted commas became a springboard for later success so i, I know i never give you guys short answers but i would be thinking around those you know, a bit of an interrogation i don't think there's a quick and easy way to get over a fear of failure i think you need to understand what it is i would also wonder whether you know you need to i felt like a failure for not finishing the book no <laughs> no not at all not at all so exactly like it's just a book and also i sometimes keeping things in perspective is important like it's just a book don't worry about it you know it's it's fine you can come back to it later this isn't the end of time there is there is more time and you can come back to things and that's okay sorry what's the other comment sentence that stuck with me a child who doesn't play is a child who's struggling okay grand yeah no i think that's i think it is important and i think it's one of the ways that you can really tell because quite often children who are struggling might still be performing quite well in terms of their grades right you know often a school and academics or even sports and after school activities can be a retreat for children who are struggling in other ways you know so that they might throw all of their energy into their studies so it's I mean it's true in some cases but it can be a misnomer that you can always tell that a child is struggling because their grades are falling but play is 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 pretty is pretty consistent it's very I, I can't think of a way in which someone who is under pressure stressed can then engage in light-hearted creative activity yeah so cool i'm glad that you've um, found that useful your next question how do i feel my face my fears when i'm my only safety net so this is a really really important question and again I'm afraid I don't think there is an easy answer because I think if you, I'm going to hope that some of you guys are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So it's presented as a pyramid, as a triangle, and there are different levels. And at the bottom are your basic physiological needs as a human being, like water, food, warmth, shelter, like basic physiological needs. And the thing about Maslow's hierarchy is that you have to go from one level to the next before you get to the top. So there are basic physiological needs at the bottom, then you move up and you've got your kind of intimacy needs, your friendship, safety, belonging, that sort of stuff. Then you've got, I'm just gonna be trying to remember from ancient psychology. Then you've got your self-esteem needs and then right at the top, 
apex is your self-actualization so that's the point at which you fully become yourself you are striving for your goals you are applying for those you know auditioning for parts in the in the play whatever right those those big creative self-actualization points come right at the top but you absolutely must go through the other levels first so in this example how can i face my fears when I am my own safety net. There's a real limitation on that, right? So if you're if facing your fears is up here in the self-actualization level, but you're down here at basic safety, then I think it's incredibly difficult because you simply will not feel safe enough to move up to that next level where you'll need to um, address your fears. So I would... I would focus lower down first. You know, I don't think we should pretend that, you know, everyone has a safety net. I think a lot of the time what can happen is that people who have been let down a lot, whether that was intentionally or whether, you know, things, life happened and things were taken away from them, end up believing, you know, accurately or inaccurately that, they are their only protection, right? I can only rely on myself. And if that's the case, then the focus should be on how do I build up a network? What do I need to do? Can I ask for help? Do I need to repair some relationships? Do I need to deepen some of the relationships that I do have? Do I need to, you know, seek some additional support so that you have those, that foundation safety that will allow you to get further up in that hierarchy. So... I would say that there is a, a probably a bit of foundational work to do first and then it will become easier. Okay. All right. Next question. So I'm going to make sure I am answering these. Does fear make you sick? And I guess the answer to this is actually, no, before then, it's probably someone said, you know, how can you define fear? How is it defined? Is there a hierarchy of fear? And I wasn't really sure what this person meant by this, but I guess fear is an automatic, autonomic response that is linked to the perception of threat. And I think that would be kind of a broad definition of it. And that threat in our evolutionary sense and which for which our threat system was adapted um, used to be short-term, and used to be rare. So you need to very occasionally run away from a carnivorous predator. And then when you got to safety, you could rest. It's only really in modern life that we have this much more complex level of threats, primarily to our status, that create a more prolonged sense of fear, right? So the more we live in competitive environments, the more we live separated and isolated from our families or our safety networks, the more we have precarious jobs and incomes, the, you know, all of that stuff, then the more of a, an underlying sense of psychological threat we're exposed to. So yeah, so the fear would be that response, the awareness of a perceived sense of threat. And I'm, I'm not really sure what you mean by hierarchy of fear. So if you are on the 
call then do let me know someone else said can someone be unaware of danger you know so um, so sorry can someone who is unaware of danger for example someone with dementia or some forms of autism feel fear and the answer is yes because it's not simply a cognitive process and we know that because there is psychology is full of lots of very interesting case studies and one of those was a woman called s M, and she had damage to her amygdala and the amygdala is a part of the brain that is linked to threat detection so it's about you know seeing that th fear like you know is that a falling leaf or is that i don't know a snake falling out of the tree i don't know you know so it's about seeing that detecting that fear and deciding where that information should be sent should it be you know is there a conversation with the prefrontal cortex where you're like don't worry it's just a leaf don't worry about it fine carry on turn off that stress response or actually it's a an angry squirrel you need to run and we need to get all of those things engaged so she had damage to her amygdala and she was unable <laughs> And they did some really fun things. So they like, they took her to a haunted house and she was just like, oh, this is interesting. I mean, this was psychology in the 50s and 60s. So she was un unable to experience fear. But um, in those circumstances, you know, holding a tarantula, all of that sort of stuff. But when they exposed her to CO2, to carbon dioxide, they were able to induce a panic attack. And this is really interesting and it's really important and I want you guys to know because again, we often think about things that happen in our minds as purely just up here in our heads. You know, so we think about stress as being purely psychological. We think about depression as being purely psychological. We think about fear as being purely psychological. But if any of you have been around here for more than 10 minutes, you are not just a brain in a jar, you are a fully integrated human being and what happens in the, in the body affects the brain and vice versa. And so the brain is very, very highly attuned. Like your brain, all it wants to do is keep you alive strictly to uh, reproduce because uh, your genes are only care about reproduction. But your brain is just trying to keep you alive and it's really, really acutely aware of A, energy needs, maybe do that on another day but also kind of risks and dangers to your your well-being and excess co2 is one of those right so carbon dioxide is the waste product of respiration of metabolism you take in oxygen you use that to burn glucose and the um, waste products are carbon dioxide and water and so your body is very, very closely attuned to the level of carbon dioxide in your blood. And that's the only thing people talk about, you know, alkaline and acid and, you know, with weird diets. The only thing that can shift the pH, reliably shift the pH of your blood is the relative amount of carbon dioxide dissolved in your blood. So whether you are breathing deeply or whether you are hyperventilating. And this is a very long-winded way to get around to what I'm talking about, but hold on. And so that's the reason why people who are particularly prone to anxiety, you know, there's a, it's a bi-directional process. So some people might be anxious and then they start hyperventilating. But for some people, they might start hyperventilating and then feel anxious, right? Because the fear, that perception of threat is, 
oh my God, there's too much CO2 in our blood. We're not gonna have enough oxygen for respiration. We're in massive danger here. Switch on the stress response, switch on the anxiety response. And so reducing someone's CO2 can turn on a panic attack or an anxiety response because the brain is perceiving fear. Does that all make sense? It was very, very long-winded, but I'm basically saying that fear can go both ways, from the brain to the body, but also from the body to the brain. And so in this woman who had literal brain damage to the part of her brain that could detect threat, she was able, they were able to induce a panic attack in her by telling her brain that there was a threat to the body by low oxygen availability, yeah? And that's why annoying people like me tell you to take diaphragmatic deep belly breaths to help reduce anxiety. It's not bollocks. It's actually based on this physiological evidence that if you can tell your brain it's okay, we are breathing calmly, there is no panic here, there's enough oxygen, we're okay, then you get that message to your brain that you can turn off that stress response. I mean, there are other parts of the mechanism that happen, but you basically say, look, 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 relax, it's okay. I'm gonna send you lots of safety signals so you can switch off that stress signal, yeah? So yes, the answer to your question with a long divergence through lots of A-level biology was yes, people who can't kind of cognitively detect fear or threat can feel fear and panic through the body. All right, I don't know if I've got any time left after all that. Okay, anyway. <laughs> um, uh, and so does it make you sick? Possibly. So that's because for example, what we know is if we if we call fear anxiety and they're, they're, they're broadly the same thing. What we know about anxiety and depression, or say fear and depression, the, you know, and anxiety tends to be fear about the future, something that might happen, something that's coming. So anxiety and depression are comorbid, which means they turn up together 80% of the time, right? And what we think happens is that it is the chronic stress of the anxiety that tips someone over into depression right so in people where you know and people who just have depression it might be slightly, slightly different or it might be that they experienced a lot of anxiety for a while and now they're left with the depression but that because like i said that stress response evolved, adapted only be, to be turned on rarely and for a short amount of time. And, and, it, and it works great when it's rare and, and short-lived, right? But if you have chronic stress, chronic anxiety, you know, a long-term stressor, you get all of your stress response turned on and it doesn't get switched off. And when your stress response is turned on for a long time, you get high levels of what's called glucocorticoids, which are your stress hormones. And they do a bunch of fun stuff, which, you know, in the short term, make you more alert and more energized. But in the long term, can damage the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that deals with memory, which is why depression is often associated with poor memory function. It can, when your 
your stress response leads to more fats and sugars being released into your blood so that you can fight or run away you know it gives your muscles extra energy so that you can deal with whatever that you know immediate threat is because your body just always assumes it's an immediate threat but over the long term all of those fats and sugars in your blood can lead to increased weight around your belly but also increased triglycerides which is why depression is a risk factor for heart disease it can lead to you focusing only on negative things which again is a risk factor for depression so in that sense yes fear if we're calling you know fear if it's chronic um, and if it doesn't get turned off and we don't get enough time to recover and recuperate yes the chronic stress exposure of fear could make you sick or it could contribute to things that might be going on for you anyway they could, it can make them worse so you know glucocorticoids chronic stress tends to make things worse rather than kicking them off it just like if say if say you had a little bit of you know hardening of the arteries it would make it worse if you had um, a little bit of high blood sugar it would make it worse it's that sort of thing it turns the dial up on things that aren't going well in the first place yeah all right so where are we so someone says does your body recognize it differently from anxiety or stress broadly no it would i would say that would wrap them all up in the same way that your body will your body will assume we're in a state of threat your brain will do the the rationalization your brain will be like oh no we're not being chased this is just a deadline that we need to hit but your body won't your body doesn't understand what a deadline is your body doesn't understand that you're going to have to spend the weekend with your parents-in-law your body doesn't get that your body just says stress hormones there must be a real danger emerging somewhere um, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important to try to manage that because essentially if you're feeling chronic fear stress anxiety you're constantly telling your body that there is an immediate threat happening and so that's why we you know i'm always going on about trying to manage stress and taking care of yourself and pushing back learning to say no because chronic stress is just it's bad news all right and the final one and i've left it last maybe because i wasn't really sure how to answer it but someone just said you know i'd like to, to know how to deal with a fear of loss and i think loss is something loss is often at the bottom of a lot of our difficulties sometimes even things that seem trivial like sometimes people can struggle with decision making and it can actually be about a fear of loss because whenever you make a decision whenever you have to make a choice between say two things you have to lose one of them whereas if you don't make a decision you can in your mind you're still holding on to both of these options so loss can permeate in lots of kind of deep and and, and in a slightly more perhaps trivial ways and so i guess i i i wonder whether i'm not sure there's a way of getting over a fear of loss i think loss is uncomfortable i think it is often painful and there are ways in which if we've had losses in our lives earlier losses then even smaller losses can trigger similar feelings i, I suggest i suggest it's like it can feel like a well and that you're even if you feel like oh i've I've lost an opportunity, you know, FOMO, I've lost an opportunity to go out with my friends tonight. It's like taking a sip from your well of loss 
that you had earlier on in your life. So it can still trigger quite similar and quite strong feelings. And so I think with loss in particular, often, and this is where I sometimes have to tell my clients that I, I just, I'm going to have to disappoint you. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm very sorry, but I don't think there's a way that we can necessarily take this away or fix it, but we might just have to learn to bear it, you know, to bear the discomfort, to stay, to hold it, to allow it to be without allowing it to knock us off course. And so I, I don't know what this person was asking when they said fear of loss. I don't know if there's any real way to take away some of the sting of loss, but sometimes it's just about, can I allow it to be without allowing it to change who I am? So I will let that sit and percolate for a little while. And I think that is probably all I have. Let me go through and see if I've missed everything, anything. Pros and cons, and it's about finding a balance and ensuring you have time to play too. Yes, excellent. All right, that is all I have for you. Thank you very much for sending in your questions, for your kind attention. I hope that has been useful for you. And I guess, I, I guess I'm, I'm inviting you guys to interrogate your fears. I might also invite you to read again a book that we did do for book club, which was The Shortness of Life by Seneca. It's very short. It's a, it's a really an extended essay that I think helps to set the stage and get some perspective on the things that we are afraid of and where they sit in the big scheme of things. And sometimes that can be quite useful to get us out of our heads um, and into the world. All right. You've been a pleasure as always. Thank you very much. Have a very good evening and I will see you tomorrow at eight for our check-in. All right, good night, guys. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.